0: Well, if you ask your colleague or classmate uh, who Jesus is and whether they are willing to respond to him, you're bound to get a mix of responses. Uh, some will just reject Christ outright. They'll say he was a, a myth made up or he was a good teacher that was, that's irrelevant today. Others perhaps will say he's a prophet sent by God but not the Son of God, not the Lord of the universe. Others perhaps would say that Jesus was evil, that Christians are evil because they follow him, because they don't like the teaching of Jesus, say, for example, in the area of sexuality. Uh, Last year I was uh, speaking at a uh, camp for a Christian fellowship on uni, and uh, I was delighted to discover that there was quite a number of non-Christians present at that camp. And uh, one of them came and talked to me at length. Uh, He described himself as an atheist, uh, he told me that he could never believe in Jesus. I proceeded to tell him who Jesus is and give him some evidence for Jesus. But to my new friend, there was always uh, another possible interpretation. You know, he wasn't really executed on the cross and risen. He just fell asleep and then woke up again. And his miracles, they weren't real. He was just a magician and so on. And he kept asking for more and more evidence. And it was very clear after a while that we were just going around uh, in circles. And so I asked him, uh, what evidence would convince you that Jesus is the Son of God and you to follow him? And his answer really said it all. He said, none. No evidence will ever convince me there is none. Uh, My friend was wanting to have a conversation about evidence, but he refused. To consider it. His mind was made up. The decision was made. Now, Of course, for others, uh, the rejection of Jesus is not so outright. They'll say things like, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, but. Or, I identify with Jesus, but my Jesus is kind of like this. Or, I can accept this part of the Bible, but I don't really like that part of the Bible. It might be a little bit more subtle, but it's still a rejection of Christ. I want to ask this morning, how serious is it to reject Christ? Because that is the question of the passage today. Now, Mark, of course, began his gospel declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that declaration of his identity is echoed at his baptism. God says, you are my son whom I love. Uh, And in chapters 1, verse 14 to chapter 2, verse 12, we've seen Jesus showing his kingly authority uh, as the Christ, as he establishes the long-awaited kingdom of God. And so we've seen his authority over people. He calls them, and they follow him. We've seen his authority to teach. He's he's not like the scribes. We've seen his authority over demons, his authority over sickness, his authority to forgive sins, and we've seen his authority over the Sabbath last week as well. And and as Jesus shows his, his great kingly authority, massive crowds have been gathering to Jesus as his popularity swells. And yet it has not all been positive. We saw last week, chapter 2, verse 13 onwards, there is mounting opposition to Jesus, particularly from the religious leaders. They are outraged by Jesus' willingness to heal and to minister on the Sabbath day. Jesus is showing that he is bringing the new age, that it does not conform to the old age, especially to to the Pharisees' rules. But we, we ended last week in chapter 3 verse 6 with the Pharisees so enraged that along with the Herodians they are plotting Jesus' death. It's fierce opposition against Jesus. You have the church, Pharisees, the state if you like, the Herodians united together opposing Jesus. Well how will Jesus respond? think Jesus will go out and have peace talks with the Pharisees. You know, let's sit down and work this out. Or maybe run away. Oh, sorry, I never meant to offend anyone. Or will he get angry and then strike back against these people? Well, notice he doesn't respond in any of these ways. In fact, at first it seems as though he doesn't respond at all. But we will see he does respond in response to their rejection as he calmly replaces his opponents with a a new people that will be faithful. And this is the main point this morning. If you reject Jesus, you will miss out on the kingdom and he'll share it with others. If you reject Jesus, you'll miss out on the kingdom and he'll share it with others. Well, let's begin. Point one. Jesus calls a new people for God. Chapter three, verse seven. Jesus withdrew... With his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowds heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now, Mark has been using this little phrase beside the sea to divine up uh, these opening. Chapters. It was there one, verse 16, passing alongside the sea. Began the next section last week, chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again by, beside the sea. And then again today, 3, verse 7, he withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Uh, and we've seen the crowds building as he does. Now, from verse 7 and 8, you see where all these great crowds come from, from every corner uh, of Israel. They come from the south, from the east, from the north, from the extremities of Uh, ancient, the ancient kingdom of Israel. And Jesus begins to make preparations for this enormous crowd we see in verse 9. He told his disciples to have a belt ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So, the crowds that are here for miracles, uh, no doubt uh, by this point the hospitals are emptying, uh, the doctors are taking leave, because every sick person's coming to Jesus that he might heal them. Uh, others come to be delivered from the grip of evil, from, from demons. But even here, as we see Jesus, his fame, his authority, his power being manifest we see the failure of Israel. They come for miracles. They come to see the great things he is doing. The demons, they know his true identity. They know he's the son of God, but the people do not. And the demons are silenced so that he might reveal his identity to those whom he chooses Well, what Jesus does next has great significance, verses 13 to 19. And Mark expects us to understand the meaning of the events by the way that he selects them and orders them. Uh, Now, the significance of Jesus calling these 12 disciples is recognized by observing a few key details. First, notice where Jesus goes in verse 13. He went up on the mountain. Of course, Israel's history had begun with Moses. Going up the mountain, up Mount Sinai, where he met with God and received the Ten Commandments. And now Jesus goes up the mountain. Second, notice that Jesus chooses the apostles. Verse 13, he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Uh, Note the apostles become apostles by Jesus' decision and not their decision. Out of the great crowd around Jesus... Jesus chooses this elect 12 to be his. And that's significant as well, because in the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen elect people. They, they became his people not by their choice, but by God's. Uh, we saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, God said, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. See, God chose Israel. He loved Israel because he'd chosen Abraham and he'd sworn to him his covenant. And so now the apostles are chosen, they are loved, they are elect, set aside from the rest as his special apostles. Third, we note that Jesus chooses 12 apostles. Verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. Now the number 12 is significant, isn't it? There's 12 tribes uh, in Old Testament Israel. Fourth, notice the mission Jesus gives the apostles. Verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority and to cast out demons. And so the disciples are to do what Jesus is doing. His mission was to be their mission. And, And that too reflected Old Testament Israel as well. For as Old Testament Israel stood at Mount Sinai, they were given that same mission too to make God known to the nations. And we read of that in Exodus 19. God says this, If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to be his special chosen people. They were to be a kingdom of priests, for they were chosen to be the nation that would represent him to the world, that would make him known to the world. Well, fifth, notice how Jesus renames a number of the disciples. Verse 16, he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he also gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagines, that is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So the new names are significant because Jesus is giving his his disciples a new identity. He's changing them from old Israel to new to the new Israel. So let's put all these observations together. Jesus goes up on a mountain like Moses. He chooses 12 elect apostles as God chose, 12 elect tribes. He gave them a mission to make him known, the same mission as Israel. He gives them a new identity as he gave Israel a new identity. In other words, as Jesus comes as the long-awaited Messiah, he is reconstituting a new Israel, a, a, a true Israel, a new people of God that is replacing the old Israel. Old Israel had failed. That was all too evident in the legalism of the Pharisees who would reject Christ and put him to death. Jesus is bringing a new age that transcends the old and in that new age he he calls a new people, a new Israel. And these twelve apostles are the beginning of that new Israel, the foundation of of it. So how does Jesus respond to the rejection of the Pharisees and the failure of Israel to recognize his true identity? He withdraws and then he replaces. He rejects old Israel and he establishes a new one filled with those whom he has chosen who will join him in his mission. Now it is a warning of the importance of responding rightly to Christ, of acknowledging his rule, of coming to him for the right reasons. If we reject him, if we fail to respond to him, he will reject us and he will choose others. Now we see that played out in the rest of this passage as some people reject Jesus and others welcome him. We're now at point two, the true identity Of Jesus, now in verses twenty to thirty-five, Mark employs a a literary device which is common in Mark's gospel and is affectionately known as the Markan sandwich. Right? Let me explain what I mean. Yeah. Now the important thing about a sandwich is that it has two pieces of bread on the outside and filling on the inside. Actually, I prefer hamburgers, but Markan hamburger hasn't quite caught on yet. Right? Now the filling is the meat. It's the substance of the sandwich. It's why you buy a sandwich is for the meat, not the bread, right? And uh, that is what we have here. Verses 20 to 21, we have the first slice of bread. Jesus' family comes to seize him because they think he's out of his mind. Uh, You can go to the next slide, actually. Thanks. Yep, thanks. Then verse 31 to 35, we have the second slice of bread. Again, we meet Jesus' family who are outside calling him. And uh, Jesus will not be bound by them or distracted from his mission. And then in verses 22 to 30, we have the middle. We have the meat as we discover that Jesus is not the prince of demons, but he is the son of God who has come to bind Satan. Now, the significance of the Mark and Sandwich is that it indicates to us we are to read these stories together. They are related The stories on the bread deal with two reactions to Jesus, one negative and one positive. And the meat in the middle focuses on two potential identities for Jesus, the prince of demons or the son of God. And we have two outcomes, either forgiveness or an eternal sin that will never be forgiven. And so what Mark is doing here, as he does throughout the first half of this gospel, is forcing us to think... Who is Jesus, really? And on that basis, how will we respond to him? Now, it's often said that there are really four conclusions that you can make about Jesus. You can see them on your sheet. Legend, lunatic, liar, or lord. Legend. To say that Jesus is a legend is to mean that that he never existed, that that he's a myth, right? A figment of, of our imaginations, Now, that is a view that is is impossible to maintain. Uh, His existence is recorded even by his opponents. You can read people like Josephus or Tacitus. They were not Christians, uh, and yet together they make mention of Jesus' life, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, the spread of the gospel, and that Jesus was worshipped as God. These are historical facts that are impossible to rationally deny So the second option then is to conclude that Jesus is a lunatic and we see that's the conclusion his family has come to in verses 20 and 21. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat and when his family heard it they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now once again we read of this swelling crowd. So many Jesus can't even eat. He's interrupted at every moment. Uh, You can understand why his family thinks he's lost it. I mean, who does this carpenter think he is? Does he think he's God or something? You know, some, some rock star superstar. They want to seize him. They want to restrain him as though he's lost his marbles. He's gone insane. But the mark of a lunatic is that what they claim is out of step with reality. There's been plenty of people... Uh, in history who have claimed to be God or claimed to be Jesus and there's no evidence to back up their claims. They were crazy. But the problem with saying that Jesus is a lunatic is that all the evidence points to the truth of that statement. Remember chapter 2? He heals the paralyzed men. The Pharisees are questioning in in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus replies and he says... But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I saved you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them. Now, a lunatic will say that they have authority to forgive sins. And a lunatic will walk up to a paralyzed man and tell them to get up. But they're only a lunatic if it's all words and no action, isn't it? But Jesus has the evidence to back up his claim. He's healed all who had diseases, whether fevers or leprosy. He's commanded demons, they obey him. And the paralyzed man picks up his mat and goes home. Sure, the family recognizes he's doing what no normal man would do, but that doesn't mean he's a lunatic. Well, there's the third option then. Is he a liar? Or perhaps worse than that, is he immoral? Is he evil? Uh, verses 22 to 30, we now come to the meat of the sandwich, and we have another response to Jesus, not that he's insane, but that he is evil and dangerous, Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So we read verse 22, the scribes who'd come down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he, has, he casts out the demon. Now, notice where the charge comes from. The, the scribes come from Jerusalem, right? This is the, the bigwigs, right? This is, this is head office, right? This is the religious establishment. And notice that they don't deny the miracles that Jesus is doing. I mean, they, they're done in open, they're historical facts. Um, as I mentioned, even non Christian sources outside the Bible speak of Jesus' miracles. But unable to deny the miracles, and unwilling to accept that he is the Son of God, they conclude that he's an agent of Satan. He's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now, that conclusion is very weak on a number of levels, isn't it? Uh, firstly, because we've already seen that the demons themselves call Jesus the Son of God. Look back to chapter 1, verse 23 on the screen. Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What do you have to do with this, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And earlier in our passage, verse 11, whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So it's dreadfully ironic that the demons recognize Jesus' true identity and proclaim it, and the religious leaders... Are willing to deny it. But that's not where Jesus goes in his argument. He rather highlights the absurdity of their reasoning in another way, for the first time using parables. Let's look at verse 23. He called to them and said to them in parables: How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus makes the simple and obvious observation, a kingdom divided is a kingdom defeated. doesn't matter, it's a political party, a board, colleagues, an army, or any group that is def- will fight against themselves. They cannot hope to win. They will weaken themselves, and eventually they will fall. And so if Jesus was truly an an agent of Satan, Beelzebub, the prince of demons, why would he be fighting against himself? Would he not rather seek to demonize and destroy more people rather than release them from bondage? And yet that was essentially the claim that my friend was making at the CF camp. Jesus was a magician. He was doing evil tricks. And that was the claim of many in the first century who rejected Jesus. But it was and it is an absurd claim, an illogical claim, a claim that lacks any evidence or support. Based on the evidence so far, Jesus is no legend, he is no lunatic, and he is certainly no liar or worse. There's really only one conclusion that fits the evidence, one that explains the facts. That is that Jesus really is Lord. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And you can see Jesus states that conclusion plainly in verse 27. Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now this is a parable and of course we need to unpack its meaning. From the context, uh, the strong man here in, this, in the parable is Satan. Right? We know that from verse 25. Jesus says, If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So Satan is the strong man, and his house are the demonic forces, and his goods are those who are being held captive by him, not just the, the demon possessed, but all uh, who are held captive by their sin and headed for judgment. And Jesus in the parable is saying that he is the stronger man, the one who is stronger than Satan, who has bound Satan and is now liberating people from his possession as he proclaims the gospel and drives out demons. You see, that's the only logical explanation of the evidence here. Jesus is Lord. He is God's king. He is victorious over Satan. And he is saving people into the kingdom of God. I think that ought to be a great encouragement for many of us here this morning. I think many people, even uh, in our 21st century, find themselves enslaved to dark forces, whether that be uh, witchcraft or talismans, dark magic, demonic religion. It's alive and well today. But Jesus has come to liberate people from such evil forces. And if we are a Christian here this morning, we do not need to fear such dark forces. We are told here, Jesus has bound Satan. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is more powerful. And uh, if we're not yet a Christian here this morning and we fear all of those things, turn to Jesus as Lord. You don't need to be afraid of what the evil forces will do. He has power to liberate you. He is victorious. He has bound the strong man. But as I said, being in Satan's grip is not just about witchcraft and demon possession. Uh, look what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the counsel of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's talking about Satan among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul's point here is that before we are Christians, we are all under the power of Satan. We're all following his evil ways as we follow this world and as we follow our own sinful desires. And again, this passage gives us great hope. Even dead in our sins, the situation is not hopeless. Jesus can liberate us. Jesus can bring us into His kingdom. He has power over evil, power to bring life. That is Jesus' true identity. He is the Almighty Lord of heaven and earth. He has defeated Satan. What well, Jesus wants us to understand that what we think of Him is not simply a matter of personal preference. It is a matter that has profound, eternal consequences. And we're now at point three. Why getting Jesus' identity right matters. Well, there's a great assurance, firstly, in verse uh, 28. Every sin can be forgiven. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. So Jesus is saying... When it comes to being saved, you've never descended too far. Uh, You're never too far gone. Every sin, even blasphemy, can be forgiven. Jesus came into the world that he might go to the cross, he might bear the penalty for our sins, that he might take away our guilt and shame by offering a perfect sacrifice on the cross. So every sin, no matter how dark, no matter how wicked no matter how shameful, every sin can be forgiven if we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. But Jesus does warn, there is one sin that will never be forgiven. And that's in verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So what is the unforgivable sin? How do I know if I have committed it? And if I have committed it, does that mean that there's no longer any hope for me? Of course, this verse has caused many Christians great anxiety, and unnecessarily so. The context makes it clear what Jesus means here. Look at verse 30. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So the unforgivable sin is what the religious leaders are doing. It is to reject Jesus and therefore say that the Holy Spirit's work is evil. And we've already seen, chapter 1, verse 10, the Spirit has descended upon Jesus to empower him for his ministry. It is the Spirit's power that has given Jesus authority to heal and to teach and to drive out demons. And so the way that you blaspheme the Holy Spirit is by rejecting the kingship of Jesus. And of course, if you persist in rejecting Christ, the only one who has authority to forgive sins, then there's no more hope of for forgiveness. There's no one left to forgive you. The unforgivable sin is simply this, to persist in rejecting Christ as Lord. It is to declare that he is not God, that his authority does not come from God, but comes from Satan. Now, I say here persist because uh, it's not that if I've ever rejected Christ at any point in my life, then, then that's it, no help for me, right? No, every sin can be forgiven. If I turn back to Jesus, I'll be forgiven. The unforgivable sin is to persist in rejection of Christ's rule. And what that means is that if we are worried we have committed the unforgivable sin, then you probably haven't. And if you are worried, then just repent, turn to Jesus, and he'll forgive you. Simple as that. But if we are here today, and we're not yet a believer, and we're unwilling to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord, then we must beware. It's a dangerous path, and it is a path that unless we turn from it, will end in eternal destruction. To persist in rejecting Christ is an eternal sin that deserves eternal punishment. That's you this morning. Can I plead with you? Look at the evidence squarely and admit it. Jesus is not a legend. He's testified to in history. And Jesus is not a lunatic. His, his works Testify to the truth of his words. And he's not a liar, and he's not evil. He's from God. He is the Lord. He is your Lord. So turn the knee, turn turn to him, bow the knee, and receive the forgiveness that he offers. Well, finally, we have the right response to Christ, and that's point four. Verse 31, we come to the second slice of the bread. We resume the story with Jesus' family. Verse 31, his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they, said to, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So Jesus' family call him because of their unbelief. They wanted to deflect him from his mission and bring him home. He's saying, leave the crowds, get back to the woodwork. Now, it's a bit more subtle than what the religious leaders are doing. Uh, They're calling Jesus satanic, but this is no less serious. They, too, are rejecting the Lord. And Jesus' response is as shocking uh, to our ears as it would have been in the first century uh, in the Middle Middle Eastern culture, where, where blood ties and respect for elders was everything. Verse 33, Jesus said to them, "'Who are my mother and my brothers?' And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus publicly rejects his own family, even his own mother who gave birth to him, who changed his diapers, who raised him. If even his own family will reject him, fail to acknowledge his lordship, then even they are rejected. And they find themselves, notice, replaced by a spiritual family who will believe in him. Jesus' true family are those who gather around him, who listen to his word, who do what it says. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Jesus is not teaching us to be cold and harsh to our parents, right? In chapter 7, Jesus will teach the importance of honoring our father and our mother. But it is a reminder... That our ultimate family, our spiritual family, in the end overrules our commitment even to our earthly family. And so if we're ever forced to choose between following Jesus and following our family, we must always choose Jesus first. Now there might be some here who are investigating Christianity and you know that your parents are against you becoming a Christian. Well, if you know that God's word is true and that Jesus really is Lord and there are eternal consequences to this, then you do need to choose Jesus over the will of your family. And if you are are a Christian and your parents are asking you to do or to pursue things that are against Christ or that undermine his rule in your life, then you do need to put Jesus first even over your earthly family. Now such decisions will always be heart-wrenching but it is the only logical way to live in the light of the truth. Well, as we finish, how we respond to Jesus depends on who we think he is. Is he a legend, a lunatic, a liar or the Lord? Actually the evidence only points in one direction, doesn't it? So will we respond to him this morning? Will we be part of his new, new kingdom, his new Israel? Will we be forgiven? Will we be adopted as his family? Or will we be re- reject him and so be rejected ourselves and be guilty of an eternal sin? This is serious stuff, isn't it? Well, if you've recognized Jesus as Lord of your life this morning, Will you do what you ought to do? Sit at his feet in faith. Listen to his word. Do his will. What's his will for your life? Well, that's going to be unpacked in the rest of the gospel, but at least a few things we can say from this passage. Following Jesus means listening to his word, reading the scriptures, obeying them. It means asking for forgiveness where we failed and seeking to change. It means prioritizing Jesus even over our family. And it means seeking first his kingdom as we seek to support the spread of the gospel so that more people will be saved from Satan's grasp. The true disciple will recognize Jesus' lordship and they will put him first. Now, finally, we must be clear. There's no middle way here. Either Jesus is Lord or He's not. He's our Savior or He's not. There's no middle group here. There's no middle way. There's no Jesus is a nice person. There's no Jesus is a good prophet. It's only legend, lunatic, liar, Lord. How will you respond to Christ this morning? That choice does determine our eternal destiny. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that Jesus is Lord, that he has defeated Satan, and that he has power to rescue us from sin and death. Father, we thank you that if we would turn to Jesus, we can be forgiven of our every sin, that we can be members of your family. We can look forward to a world where sin, suffering, disease, and death are no more. Father, we pray that you would help us to respond rightly to Jesus, to listen to his word, to follow him, to do his will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.